Uh, last week I took Natalie uh, to look at some Christmas lights. Uh, and there are some really outstanding displays around town. If you haven't done the tour, do it tonight. Like, they are fantastic. And it, it's lovely, isn't it? The amount of work people go to, mainly, I assume, to do something nice for others, just to provide uh, some entertainment for the community. It's, it's a lovely uh, experience. Uh, amongst the decorations, it was hardly a feature, but there was a good number of nativity scenes. I think the largest, uh, the house with the largest number uh, was one that's down on Sproul Road, so not far from where Jenny lives. Uh, one of the, these nativity scenes, I can't remember where this one was, but one caught my eye because along with the traditional uh, Jesus, Mary, Joseph, uh, the shepherds, wise men, a few animals thrown in for good measure, along with these traditional elements, at this nativity scene, they also had an angel around the manger. And it was a good angel. It wasn't some cute little cherub. It was a fairly solid-looking angel, the kind of creature that might make shepherds quake at the sight. But even though angels show up quite a bit uh, in the time leading up to Jesus' birth, Luke doesn't mention one showing up when Jesus was in the manger. Now, I didn't get too upset about this kind of thing. It's, I don't want to make a big deal about it. Nativity scenes as they are, are a little bit creative, aren't they? They squash together events the Bible records over the first few years of Jesus' life. And so a bit more creativity isn't an issue. Angels do p- play a big part in the events leading up to Jesus' birth. But you know what? In all the nativity scenes we saw, not one included a dragon. In fact, not one included any of those bizarre, confronting images we just heard uh, Malcolm read from us in Revelation 12. Uh, Revelation 12 is the Christmas Bible reading I've always wanted to use, but never have used it for a Christian uh, Christmas message, and I've never done it. Well, you heard it before. That's not really going to fly on Christmas Day, is it? But Revelation 12 is about Christmas. It's about the birth of Jesus. But the way this nativity scene works, it's a bit like a line from C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle. Lewis wrote, Once in our world, a stable had something in it that was bigger than the whole world. Bigger than the whole world. The way Matthew and Luke record the events of Jesus' birth make that statement clear in itself. But Revelation 12 turns this up to 11. Uh, This chapter reveals how the birth of Jesus is the moment that begins to change everything for all creation, for all eternity. Now, the book of Revelation is a part of the Bible that even for people who know their way around the Bible and who read it regularly, it's a part of the Bible that feels strange and different. If you've read it before, it starts off fairly tame, but after you get a few chapters in, it feels like you've you've fallen into the middle of something like The Lord of the Rings. It's quite a strange book, and it's launched some pretty fanciful understandings. Uh, It's a strange book for us, but in the centuries around Jesus' life, it was a fairly common style of Jewish writing. Uh, The style or genre is called apocalyptic, Once again, that's a word that in itself is often misunderstood. Apocalyptic does not mean the end of the world. It doesn't have anything to do with large-scale destruction. So get that out of your mind. Apocalyptic means revealing. Apocalypse means revelation. 
the book of Revelation is sometimes called the apocalypse of John because it's the same thing. Not because it's about destruction or the end of the world, but because it reveals, it reveals God's message, God's truth, reveals it using a particular style of communication. Apocalyptic writing uses fantastic images like dragons. It uses numbers and colours in symbolic ways and it does this to reveal, to pull back the curtain to show what's really going on, to show God's perspective on what's going on. Uh, One of the key things to understanding Revelation is it's full of images and ideas from the Old Testament. We're going to see a little bit of that today. And I reckon one of the reasons people get carried away with strange understandings of this book is they don't consider how it fits with the rest of the Bible and how it actually interprets the rest of the Bible and vice versa. Uh, Last thing by way of introduction, uh, Revelation is a book where it's easy to lose the forest for the trees. If you get bogged down in the details and you forget the big picture, you you lose your spot and you make no sense of it at all. And that's why, even though there is lots of stuff in Revelation 12, there is image over image, uh, and you might feel today that you are drinking from a fire hydrant, uh, I want us to read the whole of this chapter so that we can keep our eyes on the forest and not lose focus on the big picture. Because Revelation 12 gives a big picture. The the chapter is a bit like C.S. Lewis's stable. In this one chapter, we've got the whole of history. Uh, It's told as a series of signs. You can see that there in verse 1. These are not literal events, but pictures, a symbolic story, which explains what God's doing in history and how you and I fit into that story. Uh, The first sign is of a woman who's about to give birth. So if you've got your Bible there, this is verse 1, Revelation 12, 1. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, uh, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. It's a pretty strange way to start the story. Who's this woman? Uh, She's symbolic of God's people, Israel, throughout all history, but especially leading up to the birth of Jesus. Uh, The 12 stars around her head, that is the big hint. They're meant to make us think of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the sun, moon and 12 stars remind us of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Uh, Joseph, you know, the guy with the amazing technicolor dream coat? He has a dream about his family who become the nation of Israel and his dream has the same imagery. So this woman represents God's faithful people and she's about to give birth. We'll see in verse 5, the child is God's promised king. So as we think about the time leading up to the birth of Jesus, this woman symbolizes people like Simeon and Anna, waiting for the Messiah, waiting for Christmas. And of course, Mary. Now in this vision, the woman is in agony. She's in the torturous pain of a difficult birth. This is no silent night. And remember, we're in the ancient world. In those days, uh, there was a 2% chance of dying whilst giving birth. Uh, These days in Australia, it's about a 0.00005% chance. But not back then. So this is an anxious and scary time for the woman. 
But it's even more dangerous because there's a dragon in the delivery suite. Verse 3, then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment it was born. So we've seen the mother symbolises God's faithful people. What does this dragon symbolise? The colour red means this is not Puff the Magic Dragon. Uh, Red means danger. It's the colour of war and death. And the multiple heads with multiple horns and crowns, that's common apocalyptic uh, writing. That's that's really, uh, you know, 101 apocalyptic way of symbolising power and authority. This dragon symbolises someone or something that's powerful and dangerous. In verse 9, we're told who the dragon represents. He represents the ancient serpent, Satan. But that's not how the dragon is introduced. His identity is slightly hidden. And I think that's because in this part of the story, our focus is meant to be on the mother and her child. The main point of these verses is the life of the child is in danger. And that's bad news because who is this child? Verse 5, she gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Are those words in quotation marks that the child will rule the nations, the whole earth with an iron scepter? It's a quote from Psalm 2. We heard Psalm 2 earlier. Thanks, Brent, for reading it for us. Psalm 2 is a song about nations, about kings and rulers, powerful people in authority, raging and plotting war against God and against God's promised king. Uh, But God's response to these threats and challenges is laughter. He thinks it's a big joke. He's not worried because he has installed his king on Zion, his holy mountain. A king whom God says will break them, break the kings of the nations with a rod of iron. This is bad news for those kings. The birth of this child is bad news for the dragon. When you read Psalm 2 and Revelation 12 together, it reveals something. It reveals that behind the kings of the earth, behind those who use their power to oppress and enslave and destroy... Behind rebellious, corrupt, wicked rulers is the dragon. And the birth of this child is bad news for those kings. That's why the dragon is there, ready to devour. But it's good news. It's good news for those who've been oppressed by the dragon and by powerful people throughout history. So who is the child this woman gives birth to? The quote from Psalm 2 tells us, the child is the Messiah, God's promised king. It's Jesus. And despite the dragon's best efforts, even crouching in the delivery suite, the child doesn't only survive, but he is raised and ascends to God's heavenly throne. Verse 5 continues, And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Uh, Verse 5 tells us the story of Jesus' life. In fact, it's the history of the world summed up in two sentences. The dragon has been trying to devour the woman's child since antiquity. I'll just mention a few standout moments. As Pharaoh commands that every Hebrew boy is to be killed at birth, that's the dragon at work. 
but the dragon is outwitted by the brave Hebrew midwives. Or when Goliath challenges Israel and then up for, then fights the, the shepherd boy David, that's the dragon trying to kill God's king before his coronation. Or when Herod hears through the wise men that the king of the Jews has been born and then he slaughters the, uh, the infants and toddlers in Bethlehem to eliminate any potential rivals, it's the dragon. Or the Jewish religious leaders conspiring to kill Jesus and then Jesus is arrested and crucified. It looks like finally the dragon has won. But then the tomb is empty. Jesus is alive and 40 days later he ascends to his heavenly throne, the son of man coming on the clouds to receive power and authority from the ancient of days. All of this is captured in those two sentences of verse 5. Though the vision focuses in on two moments, Jesus' birth and his ascension, because these two moments seal the fate of the dragon. When Jesus is born, it's the beginning of the end for the dragon. And when Christ ascends, it's the final death knell for Satan. So that's the story of the woman's child. And in verse 6, we see the woman is also protected by God, taken into the wilderness for 1,260 days. The word wilderness might ring a bell for us. It reminds us of Israel's history when God rescued Israel from Egypt out of the clutches of that dragon Pharaoh, they spend 40 years in the wilderness where they're led and nourished by God. And what's it mean for the mother to be taken in the wilderness for 1,260 days? It's talking about all of history, from the time of Jesus' ascension to the time he returns. Like Israel in the wilderness, God's people, Christians, live in the wilderness, rescued by God but not yet in the heavenly promised land. So this is part one of the vision. What's it about? Uh, The birth of God's promised king, the scheming of the dragon to destroy God's plans. There's no Grinch trying to steal Christmas, but there is a red dragon wanting to devour the child and the hope he brings. But the dragon loses. God wins as Jesus defeats death and ascends to reign at the Father's right hand. The next section of the vision retells the same kind of story but from a different angle. Uh, The first part was in the delivery suite, but now we're taken to a heavenly battleground where the dragon wages war against God but is swiftly defeated. Verse 7 Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But they were were not strong enough. And they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So here's where the identity of the dragon is revealed. Why is he called the ancient serpent? It's to remind us of Genesis 3, the serpent in the garden, tempting humanity to reject God, to to think of God as a, a miserly oppressor rather than as a good father. And in Genesis 3, God promises that one day a child born of a woman will crush the serpent's head. And that's what happens in the birth of Jesus. The dragon slayer, the serpent crusher is born. 
And this picture of a war in heaven, it's using the language of supernatural warfare to depict Jesus' defeat of the dragon, which happened in his life, death, resurrection, and finally in his ascension. As Jesus ascends to heaven, the dragon is defeated and cast down, which leads to a song of victory, a song of praise. Verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. The voice praises God and praises God's King, his Messiah, for defeating the dragon. The dragon can no longer accuse God's people. Uh, In the Bible, Satan is the accuser, the dobber or maybe uh, the lawyer for the prosecution. The picture is something like the accuser is in God's heavenly courtroom and brings up before God the failings, the guilt, the sin of his people. He, he takes it upon himself to, to dob, to point out the things about ourselves we would prefer to stay hidden. But the song says he's been defeated. He's been cast out of the heavenly courtroom. He no longer has a say. And how has that happened? Verse 11, by the blood of Jesus, by Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension, and he's defeated by the words of their testimony, as people trust in Jesus, testifying that he is king. How does this defeat Satan? How does that remove the power of accusations? It's because God forgives, and God's forgiveness comes through Jesus' death. When when Jesus dies on the cross, He's taking into himself the sin and guilt of his people. And as Jesus becomes sin, for those who trust in him, that's our sin, God, removed. And at the same time, we receive his righteousness. And so now, if the dragon was to accuse a believer before God, God would say, what are you talking about? I only see the righteousness and holiness of Jesus. There's nothing to accuse. Satan has no power. Because of the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, no accusation can stick. And so the dragon is defeated. He's cast down. And this brings us to the final scene. The vision started on earth in a terrifying delivery suite. And then with the ascension of Jesus, we see the heavenly impact of Jesus' life, death and resurrection as the dragon and his army is defeated. Uh, The final scene returns us to earth where we see the war continue. Like a snake that's being killed, yet its nervous system is still active and it it can move and even strike with its fangs, even though it's dead, the dragon is cast down to earth and continues to rage against the woman, against the people of God. Verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. 
The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time out of the serpent's reach. So even though the dragon threatens the woman, God continues to protect her. What's time, times and half a time? It's an apocalyptic way of saying three and a half years. It's the same as the 1260 days in verse 6. In Revelation 11, it's it's also described as 42 months. There is loads of symbolism in these numbers. 42 months. 42 months is linked to the wilderness wanderings of Israel. In Numbers 33, there are 42 stages as they move from Egypt to the promised land. So 42 months, you hear that, and if you know the Old Testament, it says, oh, right, between Jesus' resurrection and his return, for Christians, it's wilderness wanderings time as we journey with God to the promised land. Uh, Calling it three and a half years, well, seven is symbolic in Revelation for perfection, completeness, totality. There's one week, seven days. Saying the woman's time in the wilderness for times, times, and half a time means it's not forever. It's not perfection. It's, it's not going to last forever. God's, not, God's people are not always going to be on the run from the dragon. Jesus will return and make all things new. Uh, these numbers can be confusing. The point, though, is clear. The dragon has been defeated, yet he still rages on earth, but God protects his people. Nothing the dragon tries will ultimately work. Verse 15. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. The dragon tries to drown the woman, but God miraculously intervenes and rescues. What's the point of this? The point is life following Jesus, life for God's people between Jesus' ascension and return, the Christian life will not be easy. Satan is angry. He's humiliated and cast down and having failed to destroy Jesus, he'll, he'll take his anger out on those who belong to Jesus. And at times, this will make life hard. Uh, earlier this year, we read 1 Peter together. We saw how the Christian life will include all kinds of trials. And those trials, suffering, persecution, they come from the raging of the dragon. But God will protect his people. He will not allow his people to be destroyed. How's that for encouragement? Now, this has been a whirlwind, hasn't it? There's lots in this passage, but as we finish, let's step back. What's the forest look like? What's the big message? There is a dragon in the nativity. But the nativity, the birth of Jesus, is his defeat. Because Jesus has come and has ascended. Satan no longer has any heavenly power or authority. But on earth, Satan roars and rages, he pursues and persecutes, but he will not win because Jesus already has. So what's this mean for us? If in that stable was something bigger than the whole world, if Revelation 12 has just revealed 
everything that's going on in history, how should we respond? Well, if you're here today and you're not following Jesus, if you're not a Christian, the message for you is, and for all of us is, get on the winning team. If Jesus is who the Bible says he is, if he is risen and reigning, if he's bought full forgiveness in his blood, if he's the promised king of Psalm 2, then don't ignore him. Instead, kiss the son. Because one of, uh, sorry, become one of his people. Receive Christ. Trust in him. That's how you conquer. And if you're a Christian, the main message is that struggling and suffering, persecution is proof Jesus has won. Now on the surface, that sounds crazy, isn't it? We get this weird idea that if you get your religion right, life should get better for you. But that's the message of this chapter. The dragon has tried to devour God's king. He's failed. He's been thrown down to earth. And now the raging of the dragon on earth is proof Jesus has won. This is the main message of this chapter. But if life following Jesus means experiencing the rage of the dragon, what should we do? Do we need to make dragon-proof armour? Do we need to learn how to fight the dragon? No. Verse 11 and verse 17 make it clear. God's people defeat the dragon. The way we do it is by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. By standing firm in Jesus, trusting in him, not giving up on him, no matter how hard it gets. The war has already been won by Jesus. He calls his people to hold firm to the gospel message, to live faithfully for him. That's how we share in the triumph over the dragon. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we praise you for Jesus. That in Jesus, you have defeated the dragon, that our accuser is thrown down. Please help us to believe this to trust that Jesus is ruling and reigning in heaven. Please help us hold on to this truth, especially when we're feeling threatened, when life is full of all kinds of trials. Help us hold fast to the hope of Jesus' victory. Amen.